that none may despair, and but one that none may presume. One that none may despair, but only one that none may presume. I want to speak to you this Good Friday evening on this single deathbed conversion in the Bible. You may be aware that recently one of the world's top scientists, Stephen Hawking, died. Hawking's death led me to think about an article I had read a few years ago when another famous atheist had died. His death reminded me of that article and I went back and looked at it again. It was written by Southern Baptist leader Russell Moore. And he titled that article, Christopher Hitchens Might Be in Heaven. Dr. Moore began that article with these words. We'll come back to this article at the end. He began, Christopher Hitchens, the world's most famously caustic atheist, is now dead. Hitchens expected this moment, of course, but he anticipated, wrongly, a blackness, a going out of consciousness forever. Many Christians today are sadly remarking on what it is like for Christopher Hitchens to be now opening his eyes in hell. We might be wrong. Now, why would Dr. Moore say that? Well, this evening I want to return again to the first Good Friday and look at it through the eyes of Scripture and look around at the scene that day and what do we see? Well, first we see the company with whom Christ was crucified the company with whom he was crucified in verses 27 and 28 there in Mark 15. Some of your translations may or may not have verse 28 depending on the translation. Verse 27 and 28 say, And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right hand and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled that says he was numbered with the transgressors. Now notice the cause for their crucifixions these men on the right and on the left. The Bible says, and with Jesus they crucified two robbers. Luke 23 says two others who were criminals, so they were criminals or robbers, were led away to be put to death with him. Now the word translated robbers here can often mean robber, but it can also, depending on context, mean insurrectionist or someone who is a rebel or a revolutionary. And since we know that robbery or stealing was not punishable by crucifixion under Roman law, it seems best to understand the word to mean rebel or insurrectionist. And you may remember that John, in addition to calling him a robber, called Barabbas a murderer and a revolutionary. And so if we put all this together in the gospel accounts, it appears that these two criminals, whatever they had done, were possibly or likely partners with Barabbas, who was a rebel. And so Jesus was crucified between two criminals. We know that. At the essence, we know they were not upstanding citizens. These were criminals that Jesus was crucified between, as though he were one. And you notice in verse 27 the arrangement of the crosses. One man was on Jesus' right hand and one on his left. And in one sense, it was a gross injustice to think about Jesus of Nazareth between two common criminals. But this scene makes a lot of sense if you think about our Lord's ministry because Jesus spent a lot of time around guys like this. Jesus spent a lot of time with men and women, people like like these. Mark chapter 2, 
verses 15 and 17. And as he, Jesus, reclined, he was at the table of Matthew, the tax collector, not certainly a, a group of people that had a great reputation. As he reclined at table at his house, many tax collectors, not a few, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And hallelujah. Thank God that he calls sinners because you qualify. And I qualify. Matthew said in chapter 11, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You know, how appropriate that Jesus would be between two thieves or rebels. To Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, Jesus said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I wonder how many of us tonight see ourselves those ways. We see ourselves as Sinners is what we really are, as we see ourselves as rebels, as we see ourselves as people who are sick. Thank God that Jesus is a friend to sinners, and Jesus is not afraid to identify with sinners. Even in his death, he identifies with sinners. Throughout his life, he had done so, and even now in his death, he identifies with criminals. We don't know the names of either one of these men, They could be any one of us. The middle cross was intended for another man that day. The middle cross that Jesus is on was intended for Barabbas. And there's a wonderful picture of substitution, a literal picture of substitution. Jesus literally was substituted that day for a man named Barabbas. Jesus is our substitute. We need him to die in our place. And there's another irony in this text. If you go back in Mark chapter 10, two of Jesus' disciples, brothers, James and John, had requested to sit at Jesus' right and left in glory. And if you look at the wording between chapter 10 and chapter 15, they're very similar. And in a very unexpected way, these two criminals occupy these positions of, of honor that had been requested by James and John. And yet here we see in chapter 15 the crucifixion depicted for these brothers what it, would, what it would require to obtain those positions. It would require dying, suffering and dying. It would require dying to self, dying to sin, and in their case, dying literally. But God himself was behind this arrangement. This, this formation of these crosses was no accident. This was no mistake. The scripture was fulfilled when this happened that he would be numbered with the transgressors. So by positioning Jesus between two criminals, Pilate may have intended from a human wicked perspective to insult the Jews further by implying that their king was no better than a common criminal. But whatever his intentions, God's intention in this arrangement was to fulfill his word, that passage, and to point us again to the reason that Jesus had come into the world in the first place which was to identify and die for sinners. And so the company on his right and his left were were criminals. 
And now, secondly, the crowd. The crowd before whom Christ was crucified in verses 29 and 30. Let's, let's see and listen on that first Good Friday at what was happening. You see in verse 29, you see the hateful gestures. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Again, a fulfillment here of the Old Testament. Psalm 22 said, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. What a horrific scene. What a disgraceful, disgusting scene that they would wag their heads at a man who is at his darkest hour, humiliated in public. Listen to their verbal attacks in verse 29. They were saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. By the way, Jesus had not said he would destroy the temple. They had said, he had said to them, You destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, referring, of course, to his body. Matthew said, If you are the Son of God, he recorded them as saying, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so as they're saying these things, as they're saying, aha, there's a sense of glee, a sense of, of joy that they've finally accomplished what they had wanted to do all along. The passers-by are shouting taunts and even temptations. Their insults are much like the temptation of the Lord at the beginning of his ministry when he was in the wilderness. And Satan came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. And near, now here on the cross, if you are the Son of God, the crowd say, come down from the cross. And here through these people, Satan is again trying to subvert the work of redemption. Satan is still tempting Jesus even at the very moment of its accomplishment. And Jesus at this point is even weaker, far weaker than he would have been even in the wilderness. Now as you look at those verses, there's two questions that arise. One is, could Jesus have saved himself? Could Jesus have saved himself? And the answer is yes, and it's no. Yes, as God, as divine, as the divine Son of God, Jesus had the ability. He had the power. No one questions that. He could have saved himself. He said himself in John 10, I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. He told the, the people there, according to Matthew, Do you not know, do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? So yes, as far as ability, Jesus could save Himself, but, but no, Jesus always did that which pleased the Father. And it was the Father's will that He be on that cross that day. And so could He? Yes. But secondly, what if He had? What if he had saved himself? Had Jesus come down from the cross, this service would be pointless. This service would be of no value. God's power would have been displayed, yes, but redemption for anyone in this room and any hope of redemption would have been immediately voided. And so thus it was a, divine, a divinely ordered impossibility. Jesus himself said, but then... How should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so in Matthew 26? It must be so. And so the company are two criminals. The crowd, we've heard their taunts. We've seen their reviling. And third, the criminals before whom Christ was crucified. You say, no, wait a minute. I thought you just covered those. There were other criminals there that day. They weren't on crosses. They were standing in front of him. 
Verse 31, so also the chief priests, yes, the religious leaders, with the scribes, mocked him to one another, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. And so, so delighted are these Jewish authorities that Jesus is finally on a cross that they lose all composure. They join in with the reviling crowd, insulting the Son of God with one difference. They never do address Jesus directly. The crowds will address Jesus directly with their insults, but the religious leaders will not even dignify the Son of God by speaking to him directly. At no point in the Gospels do they speak to him on the cross. The Jewish authorities are guilty of the very thing that they accused Jesus of doing, and that was blasphemy. Think about this. They are blaspheming the Son of God, the Son of David, David's son and yet David's Lord. The worst criminals in this scene were the Jewish leaders. What were their crimes? As you scan the Gospels, they were guilty of conspiracy to commit murder, falsified charges, unethical conduct. They were admitting perjured witnesses, contempt of court, assault, and premeditated first-degree murder. And they admit by their own words that they were guilty by acknowledging his innocence. They said, he saved others. Never once does any of Jesus' detractors or opponents in the Word of God ever deny that He did what He did. They they never deny His miracles. In fact, they admit their authenticity. They just simply attribute them to another source. They attribute them to the devil. So they have a very warped assessment. They say, they say, this man, He saved others. They're, They're confirming His ministry. He did it. He saved people. He could save them. But then they have a very warped assessment when they say next, he cannot save himself. And yet we know how wrong they were. If Jesus could perform miracles, they should have realized that he could have performed a miracle and saved himself. And if he was not doing so, then there must be a reason that he wasn't. But they in their fallenness and we in our fallenness, we become very foolish. We become dark. We become stupid even. They could not see that there was a good reason why he was not intentionally saving himself. And so we see the company of the the thieves, the rebels on either side, the crowd, the criminals before him. And then, fourthly, we see the claim, the claim that they're making, the claim before which he was crucified. They say, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And so you have to remember here their messianic expectation. On the one hand, Jesus indeed did claim to be both Christ and King. He was both Savior and Lord. That was very clear. Jesus made it clear that he came to redeem the lost and to rule his kingdom. Ironically, several clues in the Gospels, and you see this irony throughout the Bible and especially in the Gospels, that indicate that God and man are intending two different things in the same event. And God is the one behind it. Because on the one hand, as sinful men are mocking Jesus as king with their royal purple robe, the color of royalty, and their crown of thorns, and their reed scepter, and their salutes, and their kneeling, and the homage they pay, and the titles they give, and the inscription above him on the cross, here is the king of the Jews... They intend ridicule and mockery, and yet God in the same things intended glory. Jesus is indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords. But did you pick up on the the insincerity of their claim here? They say, well, if he'll come down from the cross, we'll believe. Their claim was 
was bogus. It was wrong. If witnessing countless miracles and healings, restoration of sight and cleansing of leprosy and even the resurrection of the dead had not already persuaded them, why would descending from the cross be the magic miracle? Remember, Jesus addressed this in his parable of the rich man and Lazarus. He said, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament. They have the word of God. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Why? Because we don't want a Lord. We don't want someone to rule over us. We will always interpret the events in front of us through our broken worldview because we don't want to submit to God. The Jews wanted a Messiah on their terms and instead they should have embraced the Messiah described by the prophets, one who was a suffering servant. They should have submitted to a Messiah that was on God's terms. But they could not and would not submit to that. And so we see the criminals of the company of the criminals, the crowd, the other criminals the claim and finally the criticism with which he was crucified. They, the, the criticism here comes from the two men on his right and left in verse 32. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now here is where it gets very interesting. What was the criticism? If you go over to Luke's gospel, 23:39, you notice something happened that Mark doesn't record. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And then suddenly and very unexpectedly in the middle of this darkest of scenes in human history, something very unexpected happens. Luke 23 beginning with verse 40. But the other, this is the other criminal, right? They were both, now, now, now follow this, they were both reviling him at the beginning. They were mocking him with the crowd. But at some point, the other rebuked his friend and saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. There it is. There it is. There is the one deathbed conversion in the Bible. So as the hours pass on the cross, one criminal's conscience is suddenly gripped by the grace of God. When the impenitent thief resumed his mocking of Christ, the repentant thief rebuked him and refused to participate any longer. He began demonstrating in that moment, even on his, you could say, deathbed, the fruits of repentance and evidences of saving faith. How do we know? We hear it from his own mouth. If you, if you look at the Gospels and read his words, you see that he believed in the immortality of the soul. He believed. He believed what Hawking and Hitchens rejected. He believed that his soul would live on after death. He believed that Jesus ruled over a kingdom. He believed that Jesus would soon overcome death. He believed in the resurrection because he believed that Jesus would enter that kingdom. He believed in Jesus' innocence. He confirmed it with his own words. He believed that he had no part apart 
from God's grace. He had no hope apart from God's grace. And he believed that that grace and the source of that grace came from the one in the middle. He believed that that grace came from Jesus of Nazareth. And the result was that this thief, this rebel, this criminal expressed a repentant faith and he was affirmed by Jesus even there on the cross in his salvation. And we see a contrast between these two men. You see that the unrepentant thief, by his words, calling on Jesus to save them, was only concerned with his physical, earthly life. He expressed no interest in having God rule over him. He expressed no interest in being with the man in the middle. No doubt, had he been rescued from that cross that day, he would immediately have returned to his wickedness. His conscience was captive to the devil and it was void of any fear of God. But on the other hand, the converted thief, not one time did he request for his physical life to be spared. In fact, he affirms the justness of his sentence. He says and he confesses that they were guilty. He says, we're guilty. This man has done nothing. Our, our condemnation is just. And yet he longed for, the soul, for his soul to be rescued for eternity. And it's a good reminder that eternal salvation does not guarantee the end of earthly affliction. This man still faced the penalty of his sin on this earth. But his soul was rescued for eternity. And then we're left to wonder, what led to this? What led to this man's conversion? Well, it wasn't witnessing a miracle. We could say there were miraculous things possibly about Jesus' death. But was it his observation of of Jesus' response to the crowd? Was it his overhearing of the seven sayings on the cross? Was it Jesus' overall demeanor and behavior in these circumstances that impressed him? Had he possibly heard Jesus preach during his life? We really, we don't know. But I know this. Few people, probably no one, would have ever believed that this thief would be saved that day. He had lived a life of rebellion and sin, but it's a good reminder to me and you that no one, and I mean no one, is beyond the reach of a sovereign God. The fact that Jesus remained on the cross, the fact that he stayed there, is the ultimate explanation for why he was saved. Because his sins were atoned for. We heard that reading from Leviticus and all the Old Testament ritual that went into the Day of Atonement. Jesus fulfilled that at that moment. He went into the Holy of Holies with His own blood and He did not have to make any sacrifice for Himself because He had no sin. And He made atonement for every believer in this room. And He made atonement for that man who died on the cross that day who believed the gospel who believed in Christ and who called on the name of the Lord. Does the Bible ever say that the penitent thief was more intelligent? That he was less sinful, less foolish, less corrupt, less wicked, more wise? No, never. It was simply the sovereign hand of God. It was the grace of God. It was the sovereignty of God. That'll humble you. It should. And so I go back to Dr. Moore's words at the beginning. He said, I'm not sure Christopher Hitchens is in hell right now. Now listen, 
He said, it's not because I believe there's a second chance after death for salvation. I don't. The Bible doesn't teach that. It's not because I don't believe in hell, as the Pope possibly said this week. He said, it's not because I don't believe in hell or in God's judgment. I do, because the Bible teaches it. God says it. It's because of a sermon I heard years ago that haunts me to this day, reminding me of the sometimes surprising persistence of the gospel. He said, 15 or so years ago, I heard an old Welsh pastor preach on Jesus' encounter with the thieves on the cross. The preacher paused to speculate about whether the penitent thief might have had any God-fearing family or friends. Now, let's suppose that he did for a moment. If so, he said, they probably would never have known about this terrorist final act, his appeal to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. They never would have heard Jesus pronounce, today you will be with me in paradise. These believing family members and friends would have assumed all their lives that this robber was in hell, especially dying as he did under the visible judgment of God. They would have been shocked to meet this man in the kingdom of God. We thought you were in hell, they might say. Moore said, that sermon he heard changed everything for me about the way I preach funerals for unbelievers. And then he said, now deathbed conversions are very rare. Typically a conscience is so seared by then, so given over to the darkening of the mind that the gospel rarely is heard. But we shouldn't count, and we shouldn't count on a last second repentance. But however rarely it does happen, and who knows, perhaps you have relatives who in the last seconds of breath breathed out a final silent prayer of repentance and faith. You might be as surprised as as the thief's believing family. And who knows? Christopher Hitchens heard the gospel enough, often while debating believers. Maybe the seed of the word might have been embedded in his heart somewhere, and maybe, just maybe, it broke through sometime in the night as he gasped for last breath. Christopher Hitchens was a blasphemer, true enough, and a nasty character, aren't we all? In all our different ways. Christ Jesus came for nasty characters like us. And the same blood of Jesus that can deliver us from wrath could do the same for Hitchens. Had he, if he, at any point embraced it. It's not likely, but it's possible. And if he did, then Christopher Hitchens' past atheism would be no barrier to communion with God. It would be like my sin, crucified with Christ, buried and remembered no more. I don't know about Christopher Hitchens, about what happened in those last moments, but I do know that if he had embraced it, the gospel would be enough for him. I know that, it's, that, I know that because it's enough for me, and I'm as deserving of hell as he is. Hell is real. I want to say that again. Hell is real. I think today we need to say that in light of things we've heard even recently. And judgment is certain. The gospel comes with a warning that it will one day be too late. But as long as there is breath, it is not yet too late. Perhaps Christopher Hitchens, like so many before him, persisted in his rebellion to the horror of the very end, but maybe not. Maybe he stopped his polemics and cried out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I don't know. But I do know that the gospel offers forgiveness and mercy right to the edge of death's door. And I know that the kingdom of God is made up of ex-thieves and ex-murderers and ex-atheists like us. Friends, I say it cannot be too often or too loudly or too solemnly repeated 
that the Bible, which ranges over a period of 4,000 years, records but one instance of a deathbed conversion. One that none may despair, but only one that none may presume. Don't presume. Thomas Guthrie. Amen.